Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Views expressed by participants are personal. Going out and starting your own company isn't easy, but it's difficult to resist doing when you have a solution that could benefit an entire industry. And that's what today's guest, Joshua Alvernia and his peers have done. Josh is the co-founder and CEO of Clue Digital, a comprehensive marketing service that leverages automation, data science, and analytics to improve media performance on customer acquisition campaigns. Ad tech was the farthest thing from Josh's mind growing up. He was in a band with ambitions of making it in the music business. When that wasn't panning out, he pivoted into advertising, enrolling at Sheridan College just weeks before the semester began. His first advertising gig was agency side working on the mother of all clients, General Motors. But it was less about the client and more about the timing that would set Josh's career on its current trajectory. His time on General Motors coincided with the growth of ad tech, where ad buying and analytic platforms started taking a bigger role in the planning process. He left agency life for sales, starting first at Rocket Fuel before moving on to Media IQ. It was during this time that he and a couple of his industry peers discussed the possibility of starting their own company. They all resigned from their respective jobs, and within months, Clue Digital was born. Being the co-founder of Clue and being the CEO, it's kind of funny because I always, every day, have to figure out what that entails. Um, I had actually never founded or led a business before starting this, and so I'm kind of always in a, a discovery, a journey of discovery, trying to figure out what we should be doing and how we should be doing it. And then I've I've kind of come to the realization that that is my job, understanding the why of what we're doing and how it should be done and what that means for the business and how that helps us discover a a focus and um, a velocity is kind of how I think about what my job is entails, is what is the direction and the speed that we should be going in in order to hit Uh, a goal in the future that's far off and everything we're doing now is kind of for the discovery of what's going to happen in two or three years from now. So it's an interesting job and it's the first time I've ever had um, anything like this, but it's really fulfilling when you, you make a call and you bring everyone along with it and it actually really pans out. Let's go back to the beginning. Where are you from? So I was born in uh, Hamilton, Ontario. I grew up in a small part of it called Stony Creek, which is also sometimes affectionately nicknamed Tony's Creek. There's a lot of a lot of Italians, <laughs> a lot of uh, Eastern Europeans, and so it was a really um, culturally enriched way to to grow up. Hamilton's a pretty major city in Canada, so I guess Stony Creek to Hamilton was kind of like say like a Mississauga is to Toronto, like it was suburban Hamilton. Yeah, so Stony Creek wasn't a part of Hamilton until maybe halfway through my childhood, and then it got brought in. But yeah, it uh, it was it was a part of a of the town that was on the mountain, and there was definitely a cultural bias um, of who kind of all immigrated there, and they all kind of created this little Italian group of people that all kind of knew each other, sometimes even from Italy. Um, and so it was very, it was very enriched growing up and you felt like there were a lot of people around you that were the same. My last name's Genova or Genova technically. So I can, I, I can empathize or I can see where you're coming from with that. Uh, <laughs> tell us a little bit about what life was like growing up in Stony Creek. 
it was very suburban, extremely suburban, as uh, as much as it could be growing up in the 90s. So, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot to really say about it, except that it was nice. You know, I had a very close family. We spent a lot of time together. I had a close-knit group of friends that all lived in the same court, and we all played video games and grew up in a very, you know, non-assuming um, childhood. And you spent your entire life there. Like that was your home. You didn't move around a lot. So I got to imagine you've seen how the neighborhood has changed. Is Stony Creek that much more different from like when you first remember it to the time when you moved out? (laughs) Honestly, it's, it's very much the same, except there's more stuff there now. Um, so it's really been developed and it's kind of expanded and now it's not just Tony's Creek and there's all different types of people that live there, which is really, really nice. Um, and the high school that I went to isn't as rundown as it is. It moved and it became <laughs> something that uh, it wasn't so decrepit as when I went there. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely very much the same and it always feels really nice to go home um, and feel that kind of sense of familiarity. You credit music with being one of your interests and hobbies growing up. How did you find your way into it? And I mean, what facet of music were, uh, did you play an instrument? Were you a singer? Yeah. So I was, I was a singer and it, um, I always could kind of do that sing. Um, and so it gave me a little bit of a identity. I think, um, um, something I've known about myself is I could kind of fall in love with anything as long as I'm really, really good at it. And so I kind of started thinking maybe I could be good at this. And I found some other people that did the same thing and you would, uh, join the choir at school or you would go to these camps or eventually it all kind of led me into joining a band. And we did, we did the thing. We got hopped in a van and we toured around and we got signed to a label and we did all of that all of that stuff. And it was a big part of, um, I think forming my risk oriented identity. Oh, I mean, if, if you're not comfortable with risk, I mean, don't join a band, don't try to make a a career in music. Yeah, exactly. And, um, it didn't necessarily pan out, but you know, in a way it did, because I learned a lot of things and I had a lot of experiences that I don't think are typical. It definitely gives you a little bit more courage when you do hop in the van and you start to tour around and real pound the pavement and try to make it in the the entertainment industry, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah, it's very similar, honestly, to what starting um, Clue was like because you're just for dudes that have a similar perspective on, you know, how to start a ad tech company or, you know, an advertising service company. And it was the same as, you know, writing music and developing your own kind of sound you would have to hop in a van in this case we hopped on a couple of planes and headed out to a lot of the same places that i headed out to when i was in a band and you just show people what you're about and you hope that they you know to use music phrasing like dig it and come along and start to support you and you develop your own little community and it all just kind of grows from there from those kind of humble humble beginnings. And it's really not much different when you, when you start something like Clue. When you were doing this, your goal, your original goal was to be the next Robert Plant. What, <laughs> yeah. how, how did Robert Plant and even Led Zeppelin get on your radar? I, I never really had like 
my own musical identity growing up. I don't think anyone else does. I think you kind of just like get it from your parents. And so dad had like a stack of CDs and mom usually dominated um, who, like what was listened to. And I guess I got kind of bored of Gloria Estefan and uh, Enrique Iglesias. (laughs) And so I saw this little small section of the, you know, the tower that used to put CDs in back when you actually had to physically own music. And he had... Uh, Bob Dylan, like the Who, especially like the Tommy record and the Quadrophenia record. He had Led Zeppelin. He had the Guess Who. And I just started like listening to those records and they really caught my eye. And the 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 whole sense of, you know, male aggression with the with the big grandiose um, recordings of the seventies that were so like rich and they would go on for eight minutes and uh, as a single, you know, tune in a record, or, you know, if you were listening to the the prog rock bands of the seventies, an entire song could be a, you know, a single side of a record and all of that just like really kind of got to me. So I wanted to, I wanted to figure out a way to bring that back in a time when it was, um, you know, the first steps of the electronic dance music scene was starting to build and there was all of this, you know, pop punk going on and um, rock and roll, you know, I wanted to be the purist and the <laughs> and somebody who would figure out a way to bring it back. Couldn't figure that out. Didn't really work. But overall, it was interesting to like pick a focus or pick something you believe in and try to figure out how to blend it with what's happening right now. This is episode 40 of the Media People podcast, so this is my 40th time asking people about who their influences were, and I went back through all of my episodes to see if there's anything comparable to what you, uh, who you've proposed, and you are the first one, I believe, who has put forward two authors. So tell us why Ben Horowitz and Dale Carnegie are two of your influences. As I said, I had no clue what I was getting into when I started Clue. Funny, funny how that works out. I just worked sales jobs, you know, before the sales jobs, I was coordinators. So you have to, you have to look for help. You have to look for some semblance of guidance. And I really liked Ben Horowitz's book um, because he kind of felt the same way when he became leadership in his companies, which ended up doing really successful, but only after uh, an incredibly turbulent series of events. Are you talking um, about he, the hard thing about hard things? I just want to make sure yeah, we get that book title in there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he wrote the the hard thing about hard things, which I really liked because, especially right now in our industry, everything is extremely turbulent and there's constant changes. And you know, there's you rarely have the the chance to be a CEO that is in peacetime versus what his whole book is about is about war being in wartime. And what that really means is just rallying everyone around an extreme focus, reinforcing everything that helps that focus and and really knowing that you know you're you're not choosing between a good choice and a bad choice just between some, like choices that might be a little bit better than than themselves and you you don't really ever get to feel peace um, where there's just a clear perfect choice. Um, and his book was really, really descriptive and I've kind of I had found a lot of guidance in that. And, you know, I really, really kind of got behind it. The other book was Dale Carnegie. And that is oftentimes a lot about just being a good person under pressure. And and it's, it's interesting how that can be a really, really tough thing. 
And both of those books are about that. It's about making decisions under pressure and being a good person under pressure, being a good leader, but also being a good confidant, being um, a good CEO, but also being somebody who, you know, your staff, your employees, your partners will want to be next to for a long period of time. And that's that was just my hope of what I could be, somebody who could be reliable in both those senses. Um, and both of those authors kind of gave me a, at least a little bit of a blueprint that, I, that I'm kind of riffing on now. What was your first job ever? My first job ever was a cashier, I guess you could call it, at Leon's. <laughs> um, I just came from a family that, you know, liked to work and really glorified the idea of getting a job and being um, being gritty and making your own money. And so really, really young, I, I got a job as a cashier at Leon's, except I was really lazy <laughs> and it didn't, it didn't work out for me. Um, or at least lazy at things that I didn't want to do. Um, and so quickly that didn't pan out. I don't even know if I made it past my probation. Um, and it didn't pan out because I had a a school rock band show like there was like this talent show kind of but there you know nobody really won at the end you just kind of show off what you can do and it was the first time that I was gonna sing on stage and then I that my boss wouldn't let me get the the uh the day off or the night off and so I just like said I quit and went and played my gig um and so that didn't really last long I ended up getting a job at Future Shop afterwards that you know was was I did as poorly as my Leon's job, but, but yeah, I kind of just did those sorts of regular jobs that you would get as a teenager when you want some money, but you also don't want to work. So this is something that you have in common with a lot of my previous guests. Most of them, their very first job was in retail. What did you learn about yourself working in retail? I realized that when I don't do a good job and it's apparent, I feel a deep sense of shame because <laughs> um, okay. I always look back. I always look back at those jobs and I'm like, I wish I would have just done a good job and would have kept my mouth shut and, you know, not made such a big deal out of it. Um, I also realized that, you know, without passion for something, it's really hard to do a good job. That it's that it's really hard to convince yourself to, you know, focus and, and be your best sense if you don't, I guess, have some sort of alignment behind it um, in terms of your passion. So it kind of gave me both the the scolding that I needed to find something that I'm passionate about. And then when the times get tough to keep going and to keep focusing and, you know, and wait till passion builds. Um, so, yeah, I really do feel appreciative of those early career moments, I guess. But uh, definitely wasn't the greatest employee, and I apologize to all of the people that were trying to book me into time slots when <laughs> they needed me to come in and I was sick or something. Well, they accept your apology because I'm sure they're all listening to this right now. <laughs> but what brought you to Sheridan College, and why study advertising? I had just left the music industry. I did not really know what I was going to do. I had a wonderful girlfriend at the time who later became my wife. And she was like, I'm just going to put you in this. You should just go call up Sheridan. They, uh, they accepted you to before. Maybe if you tell them your story, they'll, they'll let you get in. Because I think like when I, my first year at Sheridan, I had somehow slid in like a week before the, um, 
the curriculum was starting. Like it was starting in September and I got in in the last week of August. Oh, so you um, were late was, application. Oh my God. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't know how I convinced myself into that, but yeah, I, uh, my, it was my wife. She was just like, I have a friend who's doing really well in Toronto in the advertising industry. She's had a lot of success. I bet you could too. Just do it. Just don't even think about it. Don't complain. Just go and do it. And I kind of just started and it seemed interesting and I just kept staying in and eventually the passion developed, which is something I learned can happen. You don't need to have some sort of idealism, passion before you get into something. It can You can just learn to become good at it, and really love that you're good at it. That could be enough passion for it and just kind of build it from there. And I appreciate, I really appreciated Sheridan because it was a really big adulting moment for me. I kind of came into myself. I bought my own car in order to get there and I maintained a job in order to pay for it. And I kind of developed all of the the gritty tools that would be necessary to do what I'm doing today. Like a lot of people who graduate from advertising programs, they typically find their way to the agency world. How did you land at Karat and what were you doing there? I, um, I had an interview with Will Oatley and he was nice enough to let me start, but I think I just applied. I just started applying. I had actually an internship at PhD, but they didn't have a job available and uh, Karad or Kara did. And I was lucky enough to get in there and I had some really nice coworkers. Um, I had Lisa Martins. I think she has a new last name now. Um, Van Lang Kao was there. Um, I had some wonderful people that I, that kind of helped me get my first steps into the agency world while I worked on the Chevrolet account. Good thing about that Chevrolet account was that it was the, it was one of the first digital roles, um, especially as programmatic was just starting. And I got introduced to so many new companies and so many new, so many new technologies and new ways of thinking about advertising. And I was put on those teams that were like, okay, what are we going to do about digital? And it was a great first experience that kind of set the rest of my career up. So from the sales side of things, I've had the opportunity to work with Chevrolet and something that I've noticed through their agency is that they're always spending. They always have some sort of campaign on the horizon or something that they're planning for. So, I mean, you had the opportunity at the ground floor to get in with a brand that gave you a lot to work with, because let's be honest, you can only learn as much on the agency side, you can only learn as much as your clients are spending or as much as they want to activate or how much they want to get out of their comfort zone. Did you find that with them? I loved working on the Chevrolet account because they literally tried almost every single programmatic vendor. So I was introduced to all of the, the first DSPs and the first attribution platforms and the you know, the first site analytics tools and seeing how the business model was changing and the finances around digital were different and how they were structured than the finances and traditional media and how scalable it was and all the efficiencies you can get, but all the questions that were that were um, being created because there was so much still that needed to be built in terms of tracking and verifying ROI. And it was just, it was really amazing because I could also start to see what would ultimately get me to start Clue, which is that the agency format almost required you to 
build technology or to figure out how to scrap a, a couple of different solutions together to create um, a solution for the niche challenge that a brand was having. And being able to think that way gave me the creative outlet that I was hoping music would provide me, but it didn't end up working out. So figuring out that I could still be creative, but maybe in a way that was um, more inclined to actually how I think, which is maybe not artistically, but more, you know, util utilitarian in nature and technology gave me that. It was, it was honestly amazing. I was introduced to so many things and it was there that I, um, I got introduced to rocket fuel, which had, which would be kind of where I really took the first steps in my career. I do want to learn more about your pivot to rocket fuel and into sales, but from your role at Crot. Was it anything like you were told by uh, your professors at Sheridan College as to what the media industry would be like, or was it completely different? To be honest, I got to give it up to Sheridan because they were very clear and concise in what our first steps would be in the industry and that you would be doing a lot of data entry and a lot of you know, coordination roles. So I, I went in with eyes wide open. At the time, I think I more struggled with my first role because I was still commuting and I wasn't, I was half in the role, half out of the role. And I was still trying to play music at night and then go to sleep at 3 a.m. and wake up at 6.30 to catch a train at 7.25 and just that whole kind of role. I don't think I really realized how I needed to maybe make a choice as you can't live in two worlds at the same time. But when it came to what the job entailed, Sheridan gave me, gave me a really good overview and I felt, I definitely felt prepared. So I, I look back at my college experience with, with great um, admiration. That's a pretty big deal because I think that's something that's pretty common of all college and university programs is that they're training the leaders of tomorrow in whatever field uh, the students might be in. And you kind of come out of there, come out of graduation going, okay, let's take on the world. Let's run a company. And then you don't really realize that that first role is mainly data input. Like you said, chasing invoices or stuff like that. So it wasn't that much of a humbling experience for you because you knew it was coming, right? I think that oftentimes in your first job, what you're really doing is introducing yourself to the wider industry. Um, it, it doesn't happen as much these days as it did when I first started, but there were a lot of events and a lot of parties and a lot of getting to know uh, hundreds of people, which I'm kind of sad that that's no longer maybe a part of the media experience because it was such a unique thing to our industry um, that maybe has now become less prevalent with consolidation as it's happened. But my first year, I just got to meet so many people and being the, the incredible, um, you know, uh, extrovert that I am. That was so uh, amazing for me. You teased it early on that uh, you left the agency world only after your first gig to move into the sales world, specifically at Rocket Fuel. Did that role find you or did you find the role? I, I found that role. Um, they were doing incredibly well on plans and it was the first time that artificial intelligence had that word had even crossed my desk. And being a sci-fi enthusiast, that I just was absolutely enamored with the concept of the company. 
And so there was um, the Kara rep was Donna Chang and she was this amazing vibey salesperson. And so I just reached out to her and asked her if there was any opportunities. And then it turned out that they were looking for a sales coordinator at the time. And I had always wanted to go into sales because I, I seemed to have a little bit of an inclination. You know, I somehow was able to convince uh, a college to let me in applying a week before the, the actual uh, semester was starting. So I always kind of felt like that was naturally where I should be going. And it just kind of all the stars aligned and I met all the people and it was this really vibey young office with incredible professionals that had all cut their teeth already and had established names in the industry. And I ended up learning so much, so much there that that was really the start, I think, of my career was working at Rocket Fuel. A lot of my friends who have made the jump from agency life to media sales of all in one way or another said that there was a bit of career shock and that it was a bit of a cold shower making that jump over. Did you find that as well? Uh, no, honestly, but I pretty much have just gone through a succession of cold showers constantly in my life. Um, moving from one industry to the next, going from one career dream to school to um, you know, I, I got married young. I've, I've never really shied away from those types of shocks. And I think oftentimes the type of shock that people have when they move from uh, maybe the planning side to sales side is how grinding the job is in that even though you have relationships, you still need to prove the business case and that not everyone gives everything to you based on relationships. And I think that's mostly where um, people sometimes experience the cold shower of planning to sales. Um, but I had never even really established myself in the industry yet. So what I was experiencing just was what it was. And so there was no, there's no expectations that I had. I was kind of just walking into everything in that early time in my career, just kind of shiny and dumb and pretty much had no um, expectations of what things should or shouldn't be. What brought you to Media IQ? Did you find that role or did the role find you? Um, the role kind of actually found me. So I had a colleague, uh, Barbara Rao, that worked at um, Rocket Fuel with me. And then she made the move to Media IQ. And we were just keeping in touch. And she was telling me about all the amazing things that they were doing in analytics. And that was definitely a pain point that my clients were currently having, or I could see that on the horizon was going to be extremely prevalent in the industry. And it just kind of felt like a good next step for learning and for career growth. Um, so I just kind of had the conversations and it, you know, ended up providing me with the next step in my career. What was the difference between selling at Rocket Fuel and selling at Media IQ? There wasn't massive differences. Like one of the differences of selling that I wanted, the reason why I went to Media IQ was because I would start talking to larger established businesses. So at Rocket Fuel, I was part of what was considered the mid-market team. So I went around talking to a lot of independent agencies and small to medium-sized businesses. And that's always very rewarding because you can have a great impact. But I wanted to see if I could sell to larger organizations like, you know, tier one agencies where my competition wasn't, um, you know, independent tech companies like Rocket Fuel, but, you know, large companies like Facebook and Google. 
and trying to see how how I could find gaps where those companies weren't actually finding coverage. And so that was that was interesting. That was, I think, the major change in selling between the two companies, also with the fact that their services were different. At MediaIQ, I also learned about you know, an organization that started initially as a service that ultimately built technology themselves and learning that you didn't necessarily have to be like the founders of media of uh, sorry of rocket fuel were which were they were all phds in computer sciences and artificial intelligence and so you would when you see a company founded like that you think okay i have to be that in order to found a company and then you saw the difference in leadership and media iq where they came from similar backgrounds to myself and they developed into their roles and that also kind of started to spark um concepts in my mind that maybe I could do what I always wanted to do, which was be an entrepreneur and be a founder of my own company or my own business. Okay. So that's a nice segue into the next question. Where did the idea come from? Because founding Clue happened right after MediaIQ. So I have to imagine while you were working there, that's when you were having all of your light bulb moments, starting to plan things out and look toward the future and going out on your own. While I was at MediaIQ, I just started realizing that there were large infrastructural changes to the internet. That's kind of a weird thing to say, but you know, you re, you listen to um, conversations or old interviews from, you know, Jeff Bezos and please let's, this isn't not at all a comparison, but he talks about how the internet was the infrastructure in which he could build his business. And without that there, he wouldn't have the ability to actually start building the things he needed. And as I was working at MediaIQ, I was learning about things like Amazon Web Services and, um, and Microsoft Azure and all the platforms that they were buying and internalizing into their entire infrastructure and how that was lowering the barrier that used to sit in front of um, people like myself to build technology or to be able to build technology, as I say, with a small T, not a large T like like Microsoft Azure, uh, sorry, as um, Azure is or Amazon Web Services is, but small T technology built off the infrastructure that already exists there. Um, and when I was at Rocket Fuel, you know, they had to build their their own servers and they had to have their own factory almost size or Costco size building and fill it with computers and um, pay people to maintain those computers and make sure that they didn't overheat and those barriers to me seemed insurmountable. But then as other companies started coming into the mix that kind of took those barriers away from you, everything just kind of started popping up where I saw, oh, that barrier I thought that existed in front of me no longer existed. And oh, this barrier that I thought existed doesn't exist anymore. And all of those things started culminating into my mind thinking, okay, I have a perspective on how I would run a service similar to all of the different companies I've worked at before, MediaIQ, Rocket Fuel, um, even an agency like like Kara. Um, and I started to formulate my own concept of what what should we be doing here in order to actually figure out a way that marketing and media and technology could grow a business, you know, a business that you work on behalf of. Um, and so I just started meeting like-minded people like myself, which was, you know, Gleb and, and Chris. And we kind of all decided that um, 
we believed in each other and we should take we should take the risk. From the moment you left Media IQ, how long did it take for you and the co-founders to get Clue up and running? It took a it took a little bit. We had to uh, figure out a name. We had to build a website. Um, and thank God that my wife is uh, evolved into a creative director from the person who set me on my path to marketing to also the person who ended up helping me build um, what would be the face of the company. Um, we ended up having to spend, I think it was like 400 hours in the span of five months um, or six months to build a website. And we had never done that before. We had to you know, get incorporated and do all of the things that you have to do. So there was a lot of time, but we ended up launching in July. So it was it was about three, three and a half months before we were able to um, officially set sail. Did you guys have a mentor you were looking to, to just kind of bounce ideas off of, or just at least understand what you need to do to get a business off the ground? Like you said, incorporating, getting the website together, or were you and your fellow co-founders just doing it by the seat of your pants? <laughs> you know what? Even if you have a mentor, you end up doing it by the seat of your pants. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah, there. No matter what, there is a, a large amount of fear that always is associated with doing anything new, especially anything that you put your name on, because you we basically put it in front of everyone that we've known from our entire careers, and we you basically say have at it and kind of open yourself up to that sort of exposure. We had mentors. We had people that offered advice. We had people that offered uh, backhanded advice as well. You know, even the even the negative experiences end up being mentoring uh, moments in themselves. So you you have a way that life kind of hits you back and forth, and you find your path from both the positive people that come into your life as well as the negative you know influences that come into your life. But we've had a lot of a lot of people, a lot of a lot of people come in and out to ultimately create what is this kind of community called Clue now. And I, if you really start to become appreciative, not of the, not of the business or the technology you have, but actually the people that kind of congregate around you and how you've all decided to have a similar perspective and to go at it together. And it's, it ends up being a pretty beautiful thing. Who was your first client and how did you bring them on board, considering that you guys did not have, I guess, a company that was public, publicly facing at that point? The good thing is that uh, Chris Griffith, who uh, who's one of my co-founders and one of my partners, and myself, had all been working in the, in, you know, the quote-unquote mid-market space or the independent space. And so we had a really large Rolodex of agencies and brands that we had already done a lot of good work for and who were willing to give us a shot. So when we launched, we were lucky enough to have, you know, 10, 15 clients really, really quickly. Um, that allowed us to stabilize and build. And we went really, really lean. And we just took every dollar that came into the business and reinvested it in, in people and in tools and in process. And it's grown quite quickly. You talk about a lot of the things that you guys had to do to get the company ready for its launch. But let's talk a little bit about the name. Where did it come from? Why Clue? 
I won't say it, but when I was in a band, the name was horrible. So the one thing that I didn't want to do this whole time was have another bad name. I wanted it to be easy to understand, <laughs> to be clean. I wanted it to be English. Um, uh, cause you know, sometimes you could uh, honestly pick that actually the first name, because I didn't think that clue was going to be available was clue, but K L O O that's funny. So, um, so, and then, and then I think it might've been my wife or it might've been my partner, Jeff, who was like, Hey, I just looked up in, you know, this little directory that the Canadian government maintains of all the different like copyrights, um, that people have on names. It's like the normal name is available. And I'm like, Oh really? So we took that one instead. Thank God. But honestly, it was just a little bit of a labor. We knew that everything we were going to do was around data management. Because we were seeing that there were all of these technologies that were being created that needed data to plug into in order to run. So we knew that the main thing that we would have to try to create would be somewhat of our own data management practice and platform. And that's kind of continuously evolving. And it's been an amazing success for us. So knowing that data would be the pivot point of the company and everything we did we just kind of tried to figure out things around that. And ultimately, what it ended up being is that um, uh, data is a clue that hopefully you can follow the breadcrumbs to profitability and to growth and to all of the things that, you know, you hope for as a business owner myself. Um, and so that's kind of the concept of the name. Clue's second year anniversary is coming up in July. Correct me if I'm wrong. Just We're a couple of months shy of that. Yeah, it's all it's insane. I'm so excited. Biggest difference between day one and where we are now? I think I'm a little less afraid <laughs> than I used to be. Um, a little bit of candor right there. Uh, when we first started, we really didn't know what we were doing. I think everyone that starts a business is kind of kind of in that way, especially when this is your very, very first business. So now we've we've done a lot of great things. Like we have really proven that what we said we wanted to do, we actually can do. And we've done it uh, repeatedly. And so now there is the confidence that I'm not just making this up. This is, this is a real thing that works and the machine is there and I know it's real and you can see it and it's growing and people are starting to come on board that see what you've built then you know your you know the people that you hire believe in it now as much as you do and all of those things are absolutely beautiful so it builds a confidence in you that that's really wonderful in itself too because it's not a a cockiness because you've had to go through too many things and suffer too many disappointments and overcome them but it becomes this like really really grounded confidence that you know no matter what happens you're going to figure it out you're going to move you're going to find the way to accomplish what you need to accomplish um one because you've done it before and two because you have a lot of amazing people that are that are now you know taking that banner of clue themselves and so i think the biggest differences that we have is now I think we're we're really starting to feel ourselves and really starting to get our rhythm and gain speed. Um, you see that in like our growth rate, and it's really amazing. But also that 
the community is really established. When, it before, when before it was just the four founders, it's now more than that. Um, and the people that we brought on board, they believe in it as much as we do. And that's a really great thing. Some rapid fire questions. The campaign you're most proud of. There's a few campaigns. Um, we've done really, really well in pharma where we've been able to reduce media costs by like 400% and hit ROIs, you know, 200% more than all of the benchmarks that came before. So a lot of our campaigns that we're proud of are either just actually smashing ROI or doing really clever things with data so that you can optimize to something that doesn't necessarily get picked up in the media platform by taking in CRM data, point of sale data, and being really clever about how you build a little niche technology tool. As I said, technology with a small T. Your favorite movie? So this isn't cool, but I really like The Breakfast Club because it's just so warm and it's about finding yourself and developing your own sense of purpose. And I just really like that. Your favorite video game? I loved Warcraft 3 when I was like 14. I used to play it 12 hours straight every single day. Your favorite book? The book that really set me on a better path in life was Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. But I'm also a sci-fi nerd, so I really like the book Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card. Your favorite song? I really like Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Best advice you've ever received? I actually received it from Donna Chang. Um, and she told me when I wanted to be a salesperson and she was, and, and I was just trying to force it in. Um, and she was like, you'll be, get there when you get there. And she told me something that I kind of sticks with me to the, to, uh, to this day, which is it's easy to sell something. It's harder to make it happen. If you could go back in time and give your younger self advice, what would you say? Patience is going to be the biggest thing for you. So don't worry. Everything happens in the time that it happens. My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? If I wasn't in media, I, I still, I think, would be in some sort of technology field and starting a business in that. I really think that a lot of what people are doing with technology today is art, is kind of honestly the most beautiful form of art today. So I think I would still want to be an entrepreneur more than anything. And I think I'd still want to be working with data and working with technology. Josh, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Victor. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.